Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Thomas Cranmer was born on July the 2nd, 1489. That's when all the reformers are born toward the end of the 1400s, pretty much. He was born in England, a village, Nottinghamshire, And where he was born just happened to be, side note, near Sherwood Forest of Robin Hood fame. And in fact, Nottinghamshire, if you know the legend, the sheriff of Nottingham is the arch enemy of Robin Hood. And that's a city in Nottinghamshire, sure. Thomas Cranmer's father died when Cranmer was a boy of about 12. Now his family had been moving up. In social mobility, so to speak. They were not a poor family, but they were definitely not a rich family. They were uh, just moving up, but still toward the bottom. His father dies, and the estate can't support more than one person inheriting it. And so, Cramer was not the firstborn. His older brother becomes heir to the estate. And so, what often happened to secondborn children in that day happened to Thomas Cranmer. He turned to the church to make his living. And that is the Roman Catholic Church. Because England in his day, although it was not a part of the Holy Roman Empire, collection of peoples under the emperor, it was, though it wasn't part of that, it was under the Roman Catholic Church. It had been for a long time. So he turns to the church. He goes off to Cambridge, 1503. He's 14 years old in order to train, to prepare, to serve the church in whatever way he can. And at this point, he has no idea what is in store for him. But I do want to pause here in this introduction and just make note of one experience of Cranmer's childhood because it's going to follow throughout the rest of what we say of him. That is... His secretary later in life, looking back on Cramer's life, talks about when Cramer was young, when he was in what we would call an elementary school, a grammar school, he had a very cruel and abusive teacher. And this teacher apparently, probably through force, put Cramer in his place. And the secretary, whether he's right or not, suggests that that connects to the fact that for the rest of Cramer's life, he was a very meek, mild, somewhat quiet gentle sort of a person, very submissive to authority, difficult in asserting himself even when he should, and we're going to see that. It's interesting, he's going to be tossed around by powerful personalities around him. He's, in some ways, he's like the Philip Melanchthon of England, Melanchthon under Luther's influence, and here you'll see under King Henry's for Cranmer. In some ways, Cranmer is going to be a brilliant man. He's going to write one of the most important books ever written in English. And in some ways, he's not going to be very brilliant. In fact, at Cambridge, it's a four-year degree to get his bachelor's, and he takes eight years doing it. He was not a very fast reader. He was a very diligent reader, made lots of notes. He wasn't a very fast reader. So in some ways, he proves himself brilliant and remarkable, but in other ways, he proves himself very unremarkable, both in personality and maybe, it seems, in intellectual ability. He'll be a sort of 
contradiction, if you will, because on the one hand, God is going to use Thomas Cranmer to boldly lead all of England out of the lap of the Roman Catholic Church. Not easy to do. On the other hand, our friend Cranmer will make compromises for the sake of politics and to spare his own life. On the one hand, Thomas Cranmer is going to be one of the main reasons that England moved further and further into truth, into reformed thinking. On the other hand, in the face of persecution, Cranmer will renounce his Protestant faith six times. And then he'll renounce renouncing it and die as a martyr. This is who we're dealing with this morning. Now we need a Cranmer in the Reformation, even though he's not as comfortable a reformer for us, not as black and white as a Martin Luther might be, but we need him because he shows us just how far God's mercy is willing to extend in our weakness, in our inability, in our fears, in our doubts. If God could use a man like Cranmer, and as you'll see, he does. God can use men and women just like you and me, whatever our inconsistencies and weaknesses. We do not and we cannot as Christians surrender to pessimism, even when we disappoint ourselves or others in the church disappoint us, and that is going to be Cranmer's life. We do not surrender to pessimism because we know that there is a God in the heavens and his purposes like a battering ram crash through every obstacle, whether we set those obstacles up or others do. And God is determined to do us good. And so we will see that now in the life of Cranmer and those around him. So just there in the introduction, as I don't usually do, I've given you his early life, but I've done that because I want to center the rest of the talk around three rulers of England, because these three rulers, one after another, coincide with Thomas Cranmer's own life. His fate, his destiny, if you will, is tied to these three consecutive rulers in England, so we will split up our talk today under those three rulers. The one who will receive the most amount of time because he's the most colorful and he's the one that most of what Cranmer's doing happens with is the first king we're going to talk about, and that is none other than King Henry VIII. Henry will have his son Edward, he'll be the next one, and Queen Mary after that, his daughter. King Henry, to give you some background to this section, became the king of England in 1509, which if the dates haven't confused you yet, that means that our friend Cranmer is still at Cambridge studying to serve the church when King Henry VIII becomes the king. 1511, just right after he becomes king, is when Cranmer gets his bachelor's degree. And then a few years later, 1515, Cranmer's getting his master's, so Cranmer's finishing up his education. In a very sad and brief episode at this point in Cranmer's life, he goes and he finds a young woman named Joan, and surprisingly, he marries her. This basically, for Cranmer at the time, he's wanting to be in the church, serving in the church, by marrying, he wasn't a priest yet, it wasn't technically not allowed, but it basically cut off his chance of any promotion. He does it, she becomes pregnant shortly thereafter, but very sadly, there are complications, and she and the baby die. This would no doubt have crushed very sensitive Thomas Cranmer. But in a mysterious 
in the mysterious providence of God, her death reopened for Cranmer the possibility of moving up in the church, which will be essential to what God is going to use Cranmer to do. Maybe a reminder for us in our sorrows. God's usually doing much more than we expect he is. Anyways, that happens. After several years as a master of arts, he becomes a doctor of divinity. Now, this is the PhD of religious studies. This is what you remember John Wycliffe in the 1300s had gotten over at Oxford, the other university. He gets it here at Cambridge. And that probably would have meant for Thomas Cranmer a nice, peaceful life as a professor and a nice, peaceful death in his bed, both of which suited his personality very well. But God had other purposes for him. And those purposes, as you might imagine, had a lot to do, everything to do, with King Henry VIII. Everything changes in August of 1529. To explain why that is, I have to give you just a little background with Henry and the nation. The whole nation was just coming out of two major wars. There had been the Hundred Years' War with England and France fighting for, as you can tell, a hundred years. Then right after that, England was thrown into a civil war as people in England were fighting over who gets to be king here. Both of those wars, years of wars, were both, at least in part, the consequence of a king not having a male heir. When you have a male heir as a king, at least in those days, it makes the succession from one king to the next much easier. You go from the father to the son. If you don't have a male heir, the wolves come out. And that's exactly what had happened. So, finally, Henry VII, that's Henry VIII's dad, had finally taken the throne And now there was a sort of peace. It seemed everything was well. The Hundred Years' War is done, and now the Civil War is done. Henry VII is the king. He's well established, and he has a male heir. As we'll see, he has more than one. He actually has first Arthur, so it's going to not of legendary fame, the King Arthur, and this, unfortunately, this Arthur, before he can become king, he dies. And so it's okay, he has another male heir, and that is King Henry VIII. Now the thing was, Arthur, who was in line to be the king, Henry's brother, Henry VIII's brother, Arthur had married a Spanish princess for political reasons, and her name was Catherine of Aragon. Well, when Arthur died... Not only the right to the throne, but also this now widowed princess passed on to King Henry VIII. The thing is, for some odd reason, in that day the church made it illegal for this to happen because they were, she had been married to his brother. So technically they're not allowed to do this, but as happened all the time then, you just go to the Pope and say, hey, I don't know if there's money changed in hands here maybe, but say, hey, can I get a dispensation? Can you make an exception here so I can marry Catherine for political reasons, get rest of the dowry, be tied to Spain, all this. And the Pope has no problem with it. Okay. And so Henry VIII marries Catherine of Aragon. Right after he becomes king himself, after his father dies in 1509. 
This all happens. The marriage, he becomes king, 1509. Everything seems good in the realm of England. But it was not. There was a big problem. And that is that Catherine of Aragon, the queen, did not have a son. She had several children with Henry. They all died except for one, and that one was a girl. Queen, later Queen Mary. Well, obviously coming out of what they just came out of, all of England and especially the king were very eager to have a male son. So there would be an easy movement to the next. On top of this, Henry VIII was a wicked man. He was, I mean, if you've seen the BBC specials on him, he was not a good man. And he was uh, not an attractive man either, but he liked attractive women. And so he had his eyes already set on a young Anne Boleyn, a sort of suitor, whatever female version of that is. And his eyes are on Anne Boleyn, and he wants a male heir, and all of this means he wants out of his marriage with Catherine of Aragon. Now, this is, a, this is weird, and you back up from this, and you go, look, nothing's going to excuse what Henry does here. He's a bad man. He does bad things. And in fact, when Cranmer comes in the picture, nothing's going to excuse some of the bad things he does. But as Christians, when we step back, we go, the amazing thing is that this political, lustful, weird stuff happening here, God was involved. And he was going to use this to bring about great good. Amazing thing in providence. We marvel at that. And we marvel further that God was going to bring about that great good using none other than the timid and maybe soft-spoken Thomas Cranmer. So with that background of what's going on politically, we come back now to Thomas Cranmer. At Cambridge, we fast forward 20 years after Henry's been king. Henry's been trying to get out of his marriage, and we come to August of 1529. Now, Thomas Cranmer had left Cambridge temporarily, as many others did, because there was a plague, which happened often. So you leave the city, and he was at a place called Waltham Abbey. Waltham Abbey. And if I didn't tell you how to spell Cranmer, C-R-A-N-M-E-R. And Waltham Abbey is W-A-L-T-H-A-M. Waltham Abbey. So there he is waiting for the plague to subside. And he's a scholar. And one day, two very well-educated scholar types stop by Waltham Abbey. And these just happened to be two men who were commissioned by the king to figure out how to get him out of his marriage with Catherine. And they're doing everything they can, and they're sort of at their wit's end. They don't know what to do. The problem was, as they sat down to a meal with Thomas Cranmer, these scholars, and talk, they explain what the problem is. The problem is, usually a king can divorce, can really just get an annulment from the Pope. In this case, the Pope would not give Henry an annulment. Why? This is strange, but the Pope was actually a prisoner of war at the time to the Holy Roman Emperor. Sometimes they were friends and sometimes not. The emperor had conquered the pope, basically, and taken him prisoner. And it just so happened the emperor, Charles V, from the Diet of Worms, his aunt was, of course, Catherine of Aragon. So, Henry asked the pope, get me out of this marriage. The pope looks at his conqueror, the emperor, and the emperor says, no, you don't. That's my niece. Or that's my aunt, sorry, that's my aunt, 
Catherine. And so the Pope doesn't want to anger the emperor, so he says, I'm not annulling the marriage. Basically, he just tries to delay, keep everybody happy. And that's been happening for a long time. So these two men are explaining this to Cranmer. This is a big problem. And Cranmer, they ask him, what do you think? You know, you're a scholar at Cambridge. What do you think about this? Cranmer doesn't think much about it. He, um, he says, look, I haven't really looked into this in depth, but my opinion is, if you really wanted to make some progress, I would stop wasting your time with the Pope right now in the way that you are. I would submit the question of, is this okay, to the leading scholars of Europe's greatest universities. And that meant also money would be exchanged to persuade people. But submit it to them, and if they come back and say that this is an okay annulment, that will put pressure on the Pope. The king's argument at this point, if you are interested, I won't get too much into it. He said, you know, the Pope had illegally given me a dispensation to marry my brother's wife, but the Old Testament has a verse that says, if you marry your brother's wife, you will be cursed and die childless. And he thought, I'm cursed of God. So I guess that's to his credit. He probably did think he was cursed of God. Anyways, so Cranmer says, submit it to the universities. Let them argue it out. And that will put pressure on the Pope. But that was just a passing comment with these people who had stopped by. And Cranmer thought nothing more of it. That comment would now proceed to change the course of English history. These two men left Waltham Abbey went to Henry, said, we have an idea. Presented to us by a Thomas Cranmer from Cambridge, and they present the idea to the king, and the king liked the idea. He liked it a lot. He liked it so much that he, he summoned Thomas Cranmer to himself, and he told Cranmer, I like your idea. In fact, I'm putting you in charge of it. Go present this to the universities. Get their opinion. Now, Cranmer did not want this. And he tried to weasel his way out of it best he could, but you don't do that with the king and keep your life. So eventually he says, okay, and he drops all his studies, leaves everything, heads across the channel to the continent as a spokesperson for the king to bring this to the universities. This begins his, well, what he didn't want, his political life. This was not what he was looking for, but so it happened. He goes to the continent, he actually doesn't, the, the universities, many of them agree, like, yes, this annulment would be okay, <clears throat> but it doesn't work with the Pope, so he doesn't fully succeed, but he does a good job. But from this point on, he is now committed as the ambassador of the king on the continent. Now this has two very important side effects, if you will, that were not intended by the king or Kramer. Here they are. One, it leads Cranmer into the Reformation. Thomas Cranmer and the king did not really like Luther because Luther said things in very strong ways. I suppose one reason the king didn't like Martin Luther, not only did Luther oppose the whole divorce because it was wrong, but he said that in no uncertain terms. And I don't know that Europe really had room <laughs> for these two boisterous, powerful personalities to exist side by side. So they did not get along. And so Cranmer didn't get along with Luther, didn't like him. 
and that kind of pushed him away from the Reformation a bit. He had been softened a little bit through a friend named Simon Granius, but it was really when he was abroad as this ambassador, he comes to a city called Nuremberg, famous Nuremberg trials later, in Germany. Luther's not there, but Nuremberg was a reformed city under a reformer named Osiander. And because he was there, he was taken out of his bubble, so to speak, and he began to encounter the Reformation. What, what was the Reformation really about? What were they saying? And he realized it's true. It's true, especially justification by faith alone. We're not saved through the Roman Catholic Church's complex system of sacraments. We're saved by trusting in Jesus. He embraced that, and you'll see for the rest of his life, Thomas Cranmer will be flexible, a little too flexible on most doctrines, but when it came to justification by faith alone, he held that firmly and to the bitter end. That happened because he was in Nuremberg as an ambassador. Second important side effect is marriage for a second time. Osiander, the reformer, had a niece named Margaret. And one thing leads to another. And Cranmer married Margaret. Now that's very surprising because at this point he was a priest. He was not allowed to be marrying anybody in the Roman Catholic Church. That was the teaching. Which shows that the Roman Catholic Church apparently was losing its grip on Thomas Cranmer. And it was about to lose its grip on a whole lot more than just this one Englishman. At the end of 1532, another, I guess you could say, unfortunate turn in Cranmer's life from his perspective, but important from ours. At the end of 1532, King Henry's still trying to get his annulment unsuccessfully, and the highest church office in England opens. The Archbishop of Canterbury dies. Henry has to replace him. Well, over on the continent, there's our friend Thomas Cranmer, and he's probably pretty happy. He's married. He's away from the epicenter of the storm. But it's not going to last. A letter comes at the end of 1532, and Henry, probably delighted, says, I've chosen you as the next archbishop. (laughs) Well, that was a problem. One, Cranmer did not want it. It would throw him right back into the politics he was trying to stay on the edge of. Two, he was married. (laughs) That's a big problem, to be an archbishop in the Catholic Church, being married. But what can you say to Henry? So he actually leaves Margaret for the time being. You stay here. And sadly, with many delays on purpose, makes his way back to England to, without much excitement, take up his post. He, I'm not sure that he was aware exactly what this meant, but Henry knew what it meant. Henry had had enough of the Pope. He said, if the Pope's not getting me out of this marriage, I'll become the Pope, basically. I'll become the head of the church in England. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. He doesn't exactly become the Pope, but that's the direction he's trying to head as the king. And he knows just the man to help him do it, a quiet man who will not object, Thomas Cranmer. That's why he appoints him, probably over others, maybe a little more qualified. In April, Thomas Cranmer takes up his office, and the next month, he very dutifully, to the king, declares his marriage with Catherine, Henry and Catherine, to be null. 
It's against scripture. It's as if it never happened. And Henry, very delighted, immediately marries Anne Boleyn. She'll give me a male heir, no doubt. Now, you might be thinking at this point, how can Thomas Cranmer do this? Does he not realize that he's submitting to the, basically the lusts and the moods of this evil king, Henry VIII, and he's separating the king from his rightful wife, Catherine, who's now cut off. She was treated well, but she's cut off from the king and her daughter, who should be in succession to the throne, Mary, cutting them off for the sake of the king's whim. I do have to say, with Cranmer, I don't think it was all evil motives. With Henry, maybe may closer to that. With Cranmer, not so much. You can't really understand Cranmer under King Henry VIII. You can't appreciate him, despite his flaws, unless you realize his view of kingship. Cranmer took Romans 13 very seriously. He took it the wrong way, but he took it very seriously that God is the one who puts the king on the throne, and so we have to submit to the king. Unfortunately, Cranmer didn't read in Acts, we must obey God rather than men, or at least he didn't apply that as often as he should, but... It did come from this motive of wanting to please God, together with a little of a motive of wanting to keep his head and maybe not to be burnt. So those two things together convinced him that this was the right thing to do. And with Cranmer, he makes many good decisions and he makes some bad ones. I think we have to realize that Cranmer was a very self-doubting type of a person. And his, there were some things he would stand up and risk death for. So it's not that he had no convictions, justification by faith, he held it all the way through. It was instead that Cranmer, as a scholar and as a weak and more timid type of a person, was pretty easily convinced by others. Luther, when he was convinced, that was the end of it. And with Cranmer, except for justification by faith, it was pretty much not the end of reconsidering almost anything. So when powerful personalities or threats came to him, he sometimes did compromise, though always trying to keep his conscience clear best he could. Sadly, King Henry goes on to have a total of six wives, and you may know some of those. Catherine, he's divorced. He has another, Anne Boleyn. Well, she does not produce a male child. He gets fed up and he executes her. There's actually another of his Mary six wives who is brought in by one of his officials. And he doesn't like this wife, so he quickly divorces her and he kills the official for having brought her in in the first place. This craziness is happening with Henry, but he does, in fact, through one of his wives, have a male child, Edward. And we'll come back to him later. That's what he was seeking. Now, all along the way in this craziness, Cranmer is present. And he's actually one of the only high-up officials in Henry's government who seems to survive Henry and his moods. But oddly enough, Cranmer becomes probably the king's best friend. I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that Cranmer was sincere. He was a very bad politician. He was not good at politics because he was sincere in trying to serve the Lord. He would sometimes stand up to Henry when he believed he was in the right. 
And I think Henry appreciated that when he had everyone else around him who was a little too good at politics. Now I should mention, before we move on past Henry, this is many years taking place, and we've talked about the bad things Cranmer is doing, but we should also mention two very good things that God was accomplishing amazingly through Henry and through Thomas Cranmer. Here is the first 1534, England officially breaks away from the Roman Catholic Church. This is everything Luther had been fighting for in Germany. It's happening in a weird way in England, a messy sort of a way, but it is happening. King Henry declares himself the supreme head of the church. He takes the Pope's place, basically, and he has Thomas Cranmer as his right-hand man as the Archbishop of Canterbury. There's actually a Thomas Cromwell. It's very important because Cromwell ends up being, this is not Oliver Cromwell of the Civil War later, you may be familiar with. This is Thomas Cromwell. God provided Thomas as a sort of Aaron to this Moses of Cranmer because Cranmer was not good at politics or getting things done and Cromwell was. And the two of them together God used to help break the church after the church breaks away from England to use to move further and further into reform. If you think about the English writers and preachers that you appreciate today, maybe, from the past, think about people like John Bunyan or John Owen, Jonathan Edwards here, but from England, or even a Charles Spurgeon. These people would not have existed in the way that any of them existed if England was still Roman Catholic. God used Cranmer and Henry even to make this possible. Secondly, one other important thing under Henry before we move to his son is, not only did they break from the church, but Cranmer worked hard with Cromwell to move the whole country further, slowly, but further and further toward truth, true worship, true understanding of God. You remember, here's just one example that I find very interesting. 1536, our reformer from last week, William Tyndale, was strangled and burnt to death for translating the Bible and mainly for holding views against the church. But you may remember that he's said to have cried out in 1536 at his death, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. It's Henry VIII. I'm not sure that God answered that the way Tyndale expected because I'm not sure Henry's eyes were ever really opened. He was really always a Catholic. He just wanted to be the head of the church. But something really interesting happened because really what Tyndale is crying out there is God make the English Bible legal in England so people can read it. 1537, the next year, the king authorizes an English translation of the Bible to be read in England. That's God's doing. But if you go behind the scenes and say, how did that happen? Part of the answer is Thomas Cranmer as the archbishop. Cramer's walking a fine line as the friend slash prisoner of the king, if you will. And on the one hand, Cranmer goes along with the burning of Tyndale's New Testaments to please the king. The king did not like Tyndale, and Cranmer knew if we have an English Bible, it's not going to have Tyndale's name on it. I guarantee it. But as he goes along with that to please the king, he's also working really hard to get an English translation authorized. 
What ends up happening is a man named John Rogers, a friend of Tyndale, sends him a copy of what's called the Matthew Bible that comes to Cranmer in England. Cranmer gives it to the king, and the king authorizes it for use in the realm. Everything Tyndale wanted. And the great irony in hindsight is that the Matthew Bible was only the Tyndale Bible plus the things he didn't finish translating. That's all it was. So Tyndale, Tyndale's Bible was now legal. In fact, a law was passed not long afterward that every single church in all of England had to have at least one English Bible accessible by the people so they could read it whenever they want. Everything Tyndale dreamed, he didn't see it in his life, and God used the timid Cranmer to help make it happen. Many things like that happened under Henry Tyndale had his part to play, and so did, so did Cranmer, though a very, very different one. Cranmer played this very cautious, behind-the-scenes kind of a part until the year 1547. And after six wives and a very long and colorful life, Henry VIII breathed his last. Only one person was present with him when he died, holding his hand, and it was his friend Thomas Cranmer. Now, Cranmer had survived this crazy season under Henry, in a sense had been biding his time, hoping for better winds of change after Henry, and that is exactly what happened. Henry, you remember, had one son. His name was Edward. Edward was, at the time of Henry's death, nine years old, but it was a clear succession. He would be king. He had statesmen helping him. He was young. But the thing with Edward was, whereas Henry had broken from the church but was always a Catholic at heart. Edward seems to have been a true Protestant. And what Cranmer was trying to do secretly around Henry, he could now do openly and freely under now King Edward VI, his son. This was, it seemed, a golden age dawning upon England. Now we can push into reform in ways we never could have done under Henry. One of the most important things that happened in this season under Edward is that Cranmer publishes what is called the Book of Common Prayer. You may have heard of that, may not have. It was not a great theological work. It was vague in some ways. It was not a translation of the Bible, but what was this? This was a liturgy. Church, almost anywhere in Europe at that time, having just broken from the Roman Catholic Church, still worshipped in ways somewhat different from the church, depending on where you were, but still somewhat similar. And one mark of the Catholic Church at that time was it was very highly formalized. We do this in the Sunday morning service, what we call the Sunday morning service. We do this, and then we do this. The priest says this. And then the people say this. I don't know if they did that in the Catholic Church at that time, but people say this, and he says that, then we do the Mass, and then we do this, and then you give their greeting, and then you're done. Just to make sure everything's standardized. Well, the churches that had broken from the Catholic Church carried that along with them, but they were cha- that's called the liturgy. They were changing the liturgy to reflect justification by faith. And the fact that the Mass, we don't believe, is a re-sacrifice of Christ because it's a done deal. So they were changing wording. Thomas Cramer produces the Book of Common Prayer for the English church under his care. And it's a liturgy. It's an order of worship for throughout the year. It actually is one of the most important books in English. 
and it affects your life, kind of like Tyndale's translation did, because English Christians for many, many years after Cranmer, they would come to church, they'd hear Tyndale's words in the Bible, he translated, but when they spoke, or when they heard the priest at that point speaking to them, it was in the words of Thomas Cranmer. That's the way English and its beliefs were shaped for many, many decades. And so when you come, for example, to the Puritans, they've been shaped by that, reacting against some of the bad parts. They've been shaped by that. And even to this day, we have been in ways that we don't understand. The Book of Common Prayer, it's vague, just like Thomas Cranmer kind of is. But one thing is sure. It presented justification by faith alone, the central doctrine of the Reformation. It presented it to the English people, had them saying it and hearing it for year after year after year. It basically ingrained that doctrine into the English spirit so that it has ramifications even today. And that was, in God's providence, done by Thomas Cranmer. Under King Edward. Now, sadly... This happiness under Edward was not to last. At the age of 15, this is only about six years into his rule, Edward became very sick, and then he died. Now, that certainly caused Cranmer grief, but what almost certainly caused him more grief was this question that next crossed his mind. Who takes the throne now? There's a bit of a Protestant coup trying to get a Protestant on the throne, but it was not to happen because the person who had the most right to the throne was Mary, soon to be known as Bloody Mary. Mary is our last ruler, monarch, coinciding with Cranmer's life, and you will see why she is the last one in his life. Cranmer knew he was in trouble. Mary, when she first took the throne, spoke as though she would let Protestants and Catholics kind of coexist, but very shortly after she took the throne, some Protestants tried to get her off the throne, and she said, forget all the tolerance, throws it out the window, and eventually gets the name Bloody Mary. I'll save you some of those details that you may find in John Fox or other places. Basically... Cramer knew he was in trouble because he's the one who annulled her mother's marriage. He's the one who had brought upon her misery and had almost cut her off from the kingdom that she rightfully should have been an heir to. That was Cranmer's doing, even though it was under the pressure of Henry. So he was, I think in her mind, you know, enemy number one. And he's the head of the church as the church leaves the Catholic church and moves into reform. The second thing about Mary, not only does she probably have this grudge against Cranmer personally, but she is very, very Catholic. And her goal as she takes the throne, shortly thereafter at least, is to reverse and undo every reform that had happened in the English church from the time in 1534 it had broken away from the Roman Catholic Church. She wanted to lead England back into the lap of the Roman Catholic Church. And if she had to use sword and fire to do it, then she would. So this period of time under Mary is one of, if maybe not the most, bloody time in England, especially under one of its own monarchs. Many were killed. Many Protestants. It was really only a matter of time for Cranmer. She didn't move against him immediately. 
surely an awkward time as he's in leadership, but he knows he shouldn't maybe be what's going to happen here. He's going along. Anyways, what happens is rumor spreads around England. Did you hear that the Archbishop Thomas Cranmer is celebrating the Mass, turning back to the church? It wasn't true. So Cranmer writes a very strong document declaring that is not true. I deny the Mass as the church understands it. I'm still a Protestant. That's all Queen Mary needs. She has this public document. And so he's arrested at the end of 1553. He's thrown into the tower. It was a castle with a very famous political prison in it. He's charged with high treason and then he's charged with heresy. And that leads us to maybe the best known event of his whole life, which is his death. And I think his death does two important things for us. One, it summarizes his whole life. His death is like his life. And secondly, it does show us just how far God's mercy reaches for this weak man. To keep a long story short, he's thrown in a horrible prison, terrible condition. He's 64 years old, thereabouts. Then he's brought out of the horrible prison because the Catholic Church realizes if we can get this Protestant archbishop who led the nation to renounce his Protestant faith, this would, it really would have been the biggest win of the Catholic Church since it had started fighting against the Reformation. They know he's weak probably, so they throw him in bad conditions. They bring him out to Oxford to very nice and pleasant conditions. They reason with him. Think about, you know, you're an older man. You don't need to go to the fire. Do you know how horrible and miserable that is? Just to make sure that he knows, they force him to watch his two friends, Latimer and Ridley, burn at the stake. And it's said that this so moved him that he fell on his knees and he wept. Then they take him out of Oxford, throw him back in a terrible dungeon, Everything to try to get him to recant his Protestant faith. And it works. So in desperation, he signs a series of six renunciations of his Protestant faith and says, I believe in the Catholic Church and the Pope and I submit. The Catholic Church rejoiced. Protestants were confused. They didn't think he had actually done this. Could this be? This should have kept him from being burnt. That seemed to be the promises they were giving him, if you just write this, but they changed their mind, said, well, we're going to burn you anyways. It's too important of a person. And so, March the 21st, 1556, last day of Thomas Cranmer's life, the Catholics brought him out as a sort of prize and to help encourage all of England as they now move back into Catholicism, saying, follow his example. There's a sermon given in St. Mary's Church while he's there before his burning, and then the man who's preaching says, now I want you to hear Cranmer, your archbishop himself, to make sure there is no doubt that he has renounced. Cranmer gets up and he speaks, he gives exhortations to holiness, and then he comes and he finally he says this. He said, now I come to the great thing which so much troubles my conscience more than anything I ever did or said in my whole life. And that is that I set abroad a writing contrary to the truth, which I here renounce and refuse as things written with my hand contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart, and to save my life if it might be, 
And that is all such bills and papers which I've written or signed with my hand since I was degraded as a priest, wherein I've written many things untrue, and forasmuch as my hand offended, writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall first be punished therefore, for may I come to the fire, it shall be first burned. And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrine. This was a moment of great victory for the Protestants, odd as the circumstances, and of great defeat for the Catholics. They rush him out of the church to take him and to burn him. The, the, the monk taking him along is supposed to have mumbled, what have you done, what have you done? They take him and they burn him. And just as he said, he puts his hand first in the fire to let it burn. So what can we say in conclusion regarding Thomas Cranmer? John Fox, in recounting his death, compares him to Samson. And I think there's a fitting comparison there. Samson was a man of faith, but he had many problems. But in the end, he did deliver God's people. And his death was a great success in that he tore down the temple of his enemies upon them. And that is very much similar to what happened here. Because of what Cramer did there at the end, the Protestants in England, now entering into a season of horrible persecution, were strengthened because their leader, in the end, had held firm. And what ended up happening, Cramer thought his life was a failure, no doubt. But what ended up happening is Mary died shortly afterward. Her sister, Elizabeth, Henry's other daughter took the throne, and she was a Protestant. She restored Protestantism. England returned, and so did the prayer book, and in that way, so did Cranmer. God accomplished what he meant to accomplish, and to all of our amazement, he did it through a man just like you or me. He did it through Thomas Cranmer. So let me pray, and we will be done. Lord, I thank you for this, your servant, Cranmer, who did in truth love you and served you even through many weaknesses and compromise and failures, and yet you were gracious, and we are the legacy of his work and his life and his death, and that you have granted us to believe freely in the Protestant faith, that justification is by faith alone, as the Apostle Paul teaches. So I thank you for that. I pray that you would help us to be faithful to the end. And if ever we should fail you, that, fail you, that you would extend your mercy and restore us. For the sake of your name, amen.